Welcome to Workforce RX with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Vontone Quinlivan, CEO of Futuro Health. Regular listeners to this podcast have heard about a variety of interesting workforce training programs happening at the state and local level, and many guests have made suggestions for innovative approaches that they'd like to see unfold. Well, many of these programs and ideas will require the participation of state and local workforce investment boards to become a reality. To get an overview of how these boards do their work and the challenges and opportunities facing them, we turn today to Ron Painter, CEO of the National Association of Workforce Boards. NAWB represents over 500 business-led workforce investment boards across the country and also serves associated organizations. Ron brings decades of experience in workforce development to his role, including creating and leading a workforce investment board in the Pittsburgh area before assuming his current position in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ron. You're welcome, Vanya. It's great to see you. I wish we were in person. I know. It would be such a joy to see you in person, Ron. It's just so weird <laughs> still to like see people live. So, Well, Ron, maybe you can start by adding to my very brief description of what the NAWB does. Ah, happy to. Um, I think like you would assume from a national association that we're very involved with advocacy. In fact, uh, today, the uh, House Democrats released WI, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, their version 2.0. So we're looking at how do we update that. But outside of what you would traditionally think of as working on, on Capitol Hill, working with the White House, working with the, the administration, we also do a lot of work with other national associations. We do work with, with private companies for whom workforce development is a critical issue but it's not like the issue that, that they're working on. So our part of that is not only helping them understand what current policy is, but also taking input as to what kind of policy they think we need to, to look at on Capitol Hill. We do things for our members. Uh, we call them town halls, where we are presenting topics and experts on those topics that impact the industry. And we've also started to do something we're calling coffee and conversations, which is somebody puts a topic on the table and we join collectively with our members to talk through, uh, you know, maybe it's an issue that somebody's having locally. So other people are offering suggestions. We also do something called the forum, uh, which is our annual workforce conference that is held here in Washington, D.C., we're looking forward to welcoming about 1,200 people live for the first time in, in like three years to D.C. to talk all things workforce policy. Well, I'm sure the hotels, the taxis, and the Uber drivers will be thrilled that you're actually bringing people together in person, <laughs> not to mention all of us yeah. being thrilled. Um, yeah. You know, I just jumped to the assumption that all of our listeners are aware of the public workforce system, which is funded by the federal government. But maybe you can just give a brief overview of how that system is funded and, and for whom it works. Just a little bit of a primer for those who are newer to this workforce world. Sure. And, and I'd probably treat it as what you see and what you don't. Um, because if you're f somewhat familiar, you began this by talking about workforce development boards. So uh, hopefully there are a number of your listeners who, who are familiar with workforce boards. Many of them probably know the retail outlet 
for workforce boards, which are the American job centers. There are 2,400 American job centers across the U.S. and, and the territories. They will touch probably 10 million people in the course of a year. And when I say touch, that means all the way from somebody jumping online to see what kind of positions are available in my region to somebody coming in or being dealt with virtually to talk about what are my skills, what are the skills in demand in the regional market, uh, if I want to upgrade my skills, what's the next credential that I should earn, where can I go get that credential, you know, those kind of issues. But more broadly, adult education and literacy is a part of WIOA. Migrant and seasonal farm workers is a part of WIOA. Community senior employment, uh, dislocated worker funding, Job Corps, Youth Build, Native American programs, all of those, Voc Rehab and the Employment Service, all of those are a part of WIOA. And beyond that, when we think about the workforce development system, you know, we've got to include community colleges and other learning providers that, that are in our community because the boards work across that, that spectrum. One of the other things that's also critical to, to workforce boards is child care development funding, uh, which has been going up. But if we're a workforce board in Texas, child care development funding comes through the Texas Workforce Commission and, and local workforce boards. So there's a variety of funding that, uh, that the boards are, are utilizing across the country. In fact, you know, a substantial number of the boards, WIOA is less than 50% of the, of the money that they work with. So it's a big field. It's kind of everything that when you're talking about skilling and reskilling the American labor force, Carl Perkins, the career in tech education and apprenticeship, certainly work-based learning. Thanks for the reminder of the big tent uh, represented by this workforce system. You know, one of our prior podcast guests, Ryan Craig, referenced the front page of the Washington Post, which was all about, you know, the 10 million open jobs and the 8.4 million unemployed who are looking for jobs. I mean, basically, you have employers looking for workers and then workers looking for employers. And I, I just wonder, you know, what's your observation? What are you hearing out there? Why do we have such a big mismatch at this moment in time? Man, I think it's something that I know you've encountered in, in your career, and that is that, you know, an opportunity is really only an opportunity if I can take advantage of it. So if I have the skills that are necessary, let's just pick manufacturing. But let's say I live, and it doesn't even have to be the inner city, let's say I live 40 miles from that manufacturing facility. If I don't have the transportation to get there, then it's not really an opportunity, is it? In, in, in the true sense. I was on a panel of business people and they were talking about some of the issues they have with regard to this number. And one of them was they can provide skill development. As long as that individual has the, you know, the ability to consistently show up, you know, the ability to take directions, the ability to learn. But what they couldn't contend with as a business was childcare, transportation and affordable housing. So when I look at that 10 million, I think why we so strongly believe in local business-led workforce boards is because that 10 million is dependent on the circumstances of that of that region. And you know, bringing together the players that you need to in that region, 
housing, transportation, economic development, uh, community-based organizations, faith-based organizations. You know, that's sort of a unique mix wherever you are. And, and so I think when you look at that 10 million and you look at, look, we've got like a, a you know, seven, eight million long-term unemployed. Again, as you well know from your work, that's not just a one goes into the other number. Uh, there's a whole lot that makes that equation work, that makes that market work. And I think it's something like Peter Capelli from, from Penn. I always I love being with Peter. He reminds us this is a market. In the U.S. labor market, there's over 100 million transactions a year. So it's an amazingly dynamic market. But I think at the core of it, when you get to that local area, it is that combination of where's the worker, what is the work, and where is the work. It sounds like the workforce system has many levers and maybe many moving parts and, and resources as well. So, so when does the workforce system work best? Oh, that's a great question. I think it works best when it has the flexibility and the freedom to be what it needs to be in terms of its action and its investments. So as I mentioned before, one of the things that the legislation counts on is that workforce boards go through this process of analyzing the, the local labor market, strategizing around how to meet employer needs, how to meet the needs of, of workers for skill development. They convene those players, those entities in the region, locally in the region, that can impact that. And then the board reports out about what progress are, are we making. So when the board has the freedom to do those things, and it has a little bit of money in WIOA to, to invest in training, but there's a lot more money outside the system, when it can leverage that money to make something work on behalf of you know, maybe a, a critical employer in the region, and, and I'm thinking of um, you know, places like uh, Hampton Roads, Virginia, the shipyard there in Eastern Connecticut with the workforce boards there with electric boat, when they can bring those regional workforce boards together and they can bring the resources together to really satisfy critical workforce needs, that's when the system, I think, really works. When they have good labor market data, they have people on the board who are engaged in understanding what's going on in the market and can bring that to, to the table. I think that's part of when it, what really works. And of course, having a willing partner, um, you know, in terms of business and, and community-based organizations. I think you began to allude to them, but what does an exemplary workforce board look like? And, and maybe you could give us some real examples of what they achieve uh, with that flexibility and with some of that money and leverage and labor market data and partners. Oh, yeah. You mentioned data. I mean, when you think about data, San Diego, the San Diego partnership comes to mind immediately. It's a really sophisticated example of where they have made a concerted effort and decision that they're going to focus on evidence-based, and they have built the data systems to, to help create that evidence that leads their investment. So, so Peter and his crew do an amazing job. I think about uh, Western Michigan, which is what I would call a mid-sized budget board, um, Jacob and his crew, when they were gathering businesses together, 
realized and the businesses were very interested in the work-based learning, in this case, apprenticeship. But the employers looked at how daunting, in their opinion, how daunting it was to get an apprenticeship plan approved. Jacob and his crew, the workforce board, stepped in and wrote the apprenticeship plan, filed the plan. They work with the companies on recruiting and they work with them on on reporting. So that's an example of where around apprenticeship and work-based learning, uh, a board played that critical critical role of, of tying that all together. I think of places like um, Shenandoah Valley in, in Virginia. You know, it's a rural board, but Sharon and her crew in all of the conversations across the country about equity and access, they actually convened themselves and then have been convening the community to talk about what does equity mean here in the Shenandoah Valley? What can we do about it? To me, that's an example of taking on that broader community engagement uh, around an issue of, of critical importance. We're beginning work with um, Manhattan Strategies and others here on the supply chain. So as we've started to do that, remarkable work with the ports and the, and the workforce boards. Again, critical industry, critical need in our country right now to try and figure out how do we get more capacity in, in the supply chain? How do we get critical workers there? So you, know, you have Seattle, you've got Long Beach, you've got Charleston, you've got Philadelphia, and then you have, and you would appreciate this, you know, you think you know so when we're ticking through the list of ports, okay, you know, New Orleans and we, we, all of a sudden, the Cincinnati's and the Pittsburgh's and the Milwaukee's, the inland ports started, you know, started to, to send emails to us and said, hey, wait a minute, don't forget about us. We move an enormous amount of, of goods uh, across the country. So I think that's an example with an, in, you know, sector partnership. Here's an industry that's critical in our region, good quality work, uh, hard work, but good quality work, good quality wages. And so the board has been an integral part of bringing them together. And then I think workforce boards need to both support economic development. I think they also need to, to be proffering opinion about economic development and investments. Um, and so I, th I think about the really strong partnership when you get to the Dallas area. So Dallas, Fort Worth, Tarrant County, the really strong partnership there around avionics and logistics, and then certainly the efforts in Southern Virginia and Northern North Carolina, uh, down around that, that Danville, Virginia area. So I think I would say to you, what makes a great board? It's those elements. It's identifying the critical industries. It's the board digging in saying, okay, what can we do about this? And it's not always. WIOA is not going to solve everything, but it's bringing together the, the people who can create that solution. You know, Ron, you mentioned uh, a sector strategy, and of course, I live and breathe it these days on healthcare, right? Oh my gosh, yes. Sector strategy is, is focusing on an industry and working on their workforce development. But even before my days with the community colleges, I, I don't know if you knew this, but I was first exposed to sector strategy through my involvement with the San Mateo Workforce Board. Yeah, okay. Yes, that's where I first learned about how Genentech was trying to solve their technician problem. They were having such high uh, attrition rates. Yeah. And they re rethought how they would uh, create the workforce pipeline. 
And that was my first exposure to sector strategy. And I began under the tutelage of one of the, the committee members on that board. So actually, I have to give credit to the, the workforce system for, get, for getting me started there. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I share with you because I think I'm the only member of my family of not in healthcare. So I am the recipient of many opinions <laughs> about the healthcare, healthcare industry. But I think as you know, because you, again, you've had exposure in your career, every one of those sectors has their own rhythm. They have their own nuances to, to how they function and, and what makes, you know, what's that critical pathway? What are those skills along the way? How do you put that together? So I, I think that if you just want to casually observe, you could probably do that. But I think the strength of the sector strategy is that deep understanding of not only the workforce of that industry, but also the pressures that are on that, on that industry. You know, what's happening in terms of competition in the U.S., global competition? What's happening to them? I was just sitting in a roundtable with, with small businesses and, um, you know, access to capital becomes a, a, a critical industry. So I think the other part of what makes a good board is a great director. They got to be curious and they really do have to have an appetite to hear and to think about what are these pressures on the various sectors in their region. I mean, it's it's amazing to think that our country has invested in this infrastructure that is in everybody's backyard, a resource that is available to really all of our organizations and um, communities. And yet we also have critiques of our system. So I wonder in the WIOA 2.0, which by the way, Ron, I was in the room when President Obama signed the first Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act. Yes. That was quite a thrill. Uh, I can't believe it's already 2.0 version, but um, I know, right? Didn't we? Didn't we just get done arguing WIOA? <laughs> I know. I hope some of the same element, have, you know, the regional <laughs> elements will carry on. But um, what's a wish for you in uh, version 2.0 as an upgrade? You know, I think one of the elements about the about the U.S. system that gets really tricky is the fact that it involves all three layers of government. Rightly so, because all three sectors have an important part of workforce, the workforce development system in the U.S. It's this constant, um, you know, negotiation among those those three layers. But we really believe that, you know, the old proverbial saying where the rubber hits the road, we really believe that it is at the local level where all of this has to be put together and it has to work. And again, we can say things here in D.C. like, uh, you know, transportation, affordable housing, quality jobs. We can talk about different funding streams, Carl Perkins, WIOA. We haven't talked about TANF, which is a big part of the, the system, or the SNAP employment and training program, or private philanthropy dollars that, that go into the system. Where that connects is where this actually happens, where somebody gets a skill, somebody goes to work, an employer hires them. And so really front and center for us in WIOA 2.0 is the ability for locals to make those decisions. There's a whole list of activities, workforce development activities that are allowed under the legislation. We think that local boards need to have the authority to understand what's going on in their market make investments 
in workforce development where they believe those are necessary. And then, uh, you know, we, we accept the part of that then is the responsibility of accountability. And so I, I, I think that's really, really important for us in 2.0. This is a, you know, we're on the cusp of really dynamic changes in how we work and where we work. And, and I think the system has to have the flexibility to address those changes, to be efficient, effective, equitable for businesses and, and job seekers where they are. So I think that's that's a big wish. I totally get what you're talking about. It's like these cultural barriers for all these different agencies and organizations to work together. And so it was so important to introduce concepts like braiding resources. Yes, we will honor everybody's requirements and funding streams and metrics, but we need to braid together uh, these resources and these efforts. It's not as if any of us exist in a silo. Yes. And then the other truth that is hard for people to accept is that for the magnitude of some of these workforce issues, there's no one organization that can solve them all alone. I mean, when you talk about adult education or language or digital literacy or skill sets relevant to even one sector, you know, it's more than any one community college or one WIB or one uh, corporation can bite off. So amongst the harder things to do when I was on the uh, employer side is to say, you know, Public and public must dance together before public and private start dancing, right? Absolutely. Because that's about the scariest thing you can do to the employer (laughs) is to have public entities fight amongst themselves in front of an employer. So you got to get that in control first. One of my favorite panels at our annual forum, we did this last year virtually, but we'll do it again live this year, and that is to bring the assistant secretaries from the Department of Labor, the Department of Transportation, the Department of Education, uh, Health and Human Services, and, and Commerce to talk about these issues of not only what's facing us in terms of workforce development, but what's the conversation like between them? You know, we just saw for the infrastructure bill, the Department of Transportation and the Department of Labor sign an MOU. That stuff's really hard to do, but to your point, it's really critical that there is an understanding of, of how are we going to uh, how are we going to address these needs. That's very promising. And Ron, you know, all of the major systems are being disrupted these days. Not only supply chain, higher education, boy, even healthcare. You know, with with the cut over to telehealth. So, what's the most disruptive force to your system right now that might be a good thing? I think, you know, Andrew Yang, as we were entering the pandemic, made the uh, prophecy that we were going to learn more in 10 weeks, 10 months than we were going to learn in 10 years. And I think that's so true. I think what's really disruptive for our industry is, I think, are two concepts. First of all, we see more and more workforce boards do what I think is really, really critical, and that is put the consumer, put the customer business and job seeker, put those in the center of the table and say, okay, here's the problem or here's the challenge in our community. Here's the need in our, our community. And then start to look at, at what, how do we solve this and who can be a part of that, that solution. I think that's really important. Secondly is we've learned a lot about how to do things via technology. I think the next question will be, how do we get better at doing that? And as we've all experienced the last few years, it's hard to communicate via 
like constantly virtual. You and I can do that easier in this conversation because you and I know each other and we've been together. And so, you know, we can kind of envision how we're responding, but that's really hard. You know, when you're a case manager, when you're trying to help somebody put together their life, I think sometimes that's really hard virtually. It's also that learning curve around what technology is effective and, and how do we get people comfortable with it? How do we train people in a, in a different way to interact with, with others? I'm guessing in your world, but you mentioned telework. I'm guessing doctors and nurses and practitioners had to learn a few new tricks about how to do that telehealth thing because the patient's not right there. Well, you know, Ron, when the pandemic hit and everybody was sheltered in place, the telehealth rate of adoption was maybe in the low teens. And a lot of skepticism, pessimism about, you know, whether it was relevant. And then what happened? We, we went to about 80% adoption for telehealth and, and telemedicine. And the consumers decided they liked it. So when I talked to my board, my board said, this is not going to go back. Many things may revert, but this one will not. Does that put more pressure on the industry? I mean, if you can deal with me through telehealth, maybe, you know, let's say I'm healthy enough or you've gotten me to the point where whatever the malady that, that we're working on is, is manageable that way. Does that put more pressure on the, the actual institution of a hospital or a clinic? Are the skills ramping up because that person who's got to come into the hospital now, are they... Like, I don't know, I would guess, are they sicker? Are they... Right. Um, it does change the skill sets of the workers. So, for example, there's a lot more tech troubleshooting involved before someone gets into an appointment. They call it virtual rooming is newer and, and the interpersonal skills required with that, as well as the technical skills, has come about. And that would be part of the norm of how you train uh, workers. But it also opened up opportunities. Um, you know, you mentioned, will, will people be sicker moving into the hospital? The answer is yes. So more services, even after the operation, because now folks are getting used to care being provisioned in the homes because they know that recovery is better in the home environment versus the strangeness of the hospital environment. So for a set of cases, you will be recovering in the home. And that's largely because now you have the ability and the data you know, the data as well as the infrastructure to work with centralized doctors. And you dispatch different kind of workers to support you in the care of, uh, within the home. It's it's fascinating because it opens up a bunch of opportunities and as well as presents a workforce challenge. Yeah, and I think for young people or, or you know, people who are looking to, to change the careers, um, you know, one of the industry sectors that I was around as a kid um, and as I grew up and, and got older was agriculture. And I am really privileged. I get to go every once in a while and hang out at the National Robotics Lab. I sit with the Advanced Robotics or Manufacturing Institute's Workforce Advisory Committee. So every once in a while, they let this non-techie guy come and hang out with the, with the robots. And what to me is really cool about that is that for young people, for whom ag, for whom farming is a part of how they grew up, it's a part of what they love, but they really like the tech side. You know, there's the opportunity now because there's so much technology used in, in agriculture. There's the opportunity to have both of your worlds, to get that technical education, but to still work in an industry that, that you love. So I think 
with the growth of technology, there's certainly like crazy opportunities for people to really have a meaningful career in maybe uh, an occupation that's a passion. Well, do you think this possibility with the advent of technology and frankly, the consumer willingness to do that, doesn't it also present an opportunity or, or uh, a change in how the workforce system does its services? So what does need to be local and in-person versus many of the common services, like the first visits, the paperwork, for example, does that really have to be local? Can it be done from afar or can be done with shared infrastructure? Sure. Yeah, you can do DocuSign. Um, you know, it's a number of the boards did during the, when the pandemic started, they did really like innovative, crazy things like asking you to hold up your driver's license next to your face. And so on Zoom, they do a screen capture. So there's your driver's license, there's your face, and it, and it proves that, that you're you. Yeah, I think that's, you know, one of the challenges, which I think is a positive challenge. It's one of the opportunities. What really are those things that I can check in with you on a regular basis about? But what are those things that you and I really need to sit in and work on? Um, and I think that's part of it. it. has a lot to do. I think it's why workforce development boards across the country, and, and we certainly have, have been highly supportive of the investments and the expansion of broadband. That's really critical for us, and not just in rural areas. We, we tend to think everybody in an urban area has great access to technology, and that's not always true. And so what excites Ron Painter these days? These are hard issues that you're working on. <laughs> it's the getting up and realizing that there are about 163, 165 million people in the, in the U.S. labor force. As we watch the advance of automation, the collaboration between humans and, and robots, it changes the skill set. It's the challenge facing our nation of how do we skill, reskill this continuing process for the American worker to allow them the opportunity to be the best in the world. So how do you take that and how do you push public policy that helps that happen. You know, I started my, my life in local elected office. I believe in local elected officials. I believe in the ability of, of locals to come together to solve their problems. They have to because they, they live there. So for me, what really does like juice me is when I'm in a room full of people who are trying to solve problems in their community and I get to bring that back to DC. I get to talk to, to state officials and I get to advance that. I get to, to try and give them the tools to make this happen. When you think about it, this is really not as abstract as we all think. This is about family. You know, I have family that keeps trying to figure out what am I gonna do? What are the skills that are being required? It's about friends, it's about neighbors, and it's about our community. Are there tough days in this business? Holy cow, yes. But you know, I've been blessed and I've been privileged to be able to try and make a difference for people's lives by helping them get the skills they need to provide food, clothing, shelter for their family and a sense of meaning for their, for their life. I don't know how it gets much better. I really, I really don't.
Well, I appreciate your leadership and advocacy on such important issues. And I want to mention Futura Health has partnerships with actually several uh, workforce board here in California. Awesome. Right. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring us uh, home here with the final question, which is what makes you optimistic about the future work? Hmm. We've faced these challenges before. When I went to Pittsburgh and, and we were experiencing, uh, you know, I, I got there and, and the steel industry was just the last vestiges of collapsing. And a friend of mine recommended that I read Thomas Carlyle because uh, Carlyle talked about, uh, he was talking to a group of, of manufacturers who were worried about their industry because this upstart place called America was producing goods that were cheaper than what the British were doing. And, and Carlisle said to them, there will always be a market for excellence. And so I, I think that kind of, that also sort of drives me. They're always going to be that craving for excellence. Rosabeth Moth Cantor, I heard her speak one time and she said, what really brought down the Soviet Union was that they all wanted to go shopping. And, you know, they wanted access to, to quality goods. I think it's our ability to continually meet the challenge. It's our ability to reinvent. It's our ability to look at a problem and to put it together for our communities, for our families, for, for ourselves. It's the inspiration of innovation. It's the, you know, it's the search for can we do something better? Can we do it, you know, more effectively, more efficiently? I think there's a lot of challenges that face us. I think, you know, how do we make sure that small and mid-sized businesses, which really are the backbone of our economy, how do we make sure they have access to the supports they need for a skilled workforce? But I am optimistic. I think if we can get the tools, the resources back into the hands of people in the community, we can solve these problems. We can solve these problems. Absolutely. I love your call to action to tap into our American spirit and rise to the moment and rise to the challenge. Well, there you have it. Thank you very much, Ron Painter, for being with us today. Thank you. Really, really appreciate the opportunity to join you. I'm Vontone Quinlivan with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Thank you.